screen. Oh, it's all right. Don't worry about it. No, but look. Oh, that's going to leave a stain. Rage, hey, it's fine. You're at Joey's. <laughs> really? Yeah, look. Yeah. Never lived like this before. I know. <laughs> All right, well, don't waste it. I mean, it's still food. We, uh, we all have different standards, don't we? Right? See, do you eat it off the food? Or do you apply the 10-second rule, right? 30-second rule, right? Um, now, my wife and I have different rules on the use-by dates. Karina's in the kitchen. She thinks use-by dates should be stuck to. I think a bit of green on the meat's okay. A bit of vinegar fixes that. So it's probably good that she's in the kitchen and I'm not, right? Um, I was uh, hearing my 11-year-old son giggle the other day. Um, Mate, what's up? He goes, oh, Talitha, that's our five-month-old. She's just chewing my toe. I'm like, mate, stop her. But we washed the floor yesterday. Right? We've got different standards, right? We've all got very different standards. Um, you know, someone wants 50% of their maths exam, someone else shooting for 80. Okay, you have all different standards of different things. Have you ever considered God's standard for us? What's God's standard for us? Now, most Aussies think God's got pretty low standards. You basically just be a good, you know, a good person and you don't kill anyone, you'll be okay, you don't steal. Well, at least as long as it's, I mean, it's okay to steal music and movies and stuff off the net, but as long as you're pretty okay, you'll be fine. Of course, there's some religious guys going around saying, no, you've got to be, you've got to be pretty good, you've got to have high standards. Unless you do this, this and this, then God won't have you. Well, today what we're looking at is what are God's standards for us? And we're looking at kind of the section through 5, verse 17 through to 48, but particularly the, the beginning of that is where we'll focus because that's really the engine for understanding what's going on. But So there you go. What, what are God's true standards for us? But first of all, let's just get a handle on the context. What we have before us is a mass of humanity who's gathered to hear Jesus uh, teach because word's gone out that this guy is a powerful teacher and a powerful healer. And so crowds from the entire region have gathered. I've never been to one of those kind of a big, a big uh, concert maybe where you're on the lawn and it's jostling for position. You're out in the heat and you're trying to crane your neck to hear, to hear what's going on. There's no video. There's no sound system. There's no amplification. That's what's going on here. They've heard the Beatitudes yesterday, or so what we heard yesterday, and then as they go out in the world, if they're going to be a follower of Jesus, they're going to be salt and light in the world. They'll be different. But then he says, 5 verse 17, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, unless heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What is Jesus teaching? Well, um, 
Think about the people to whom he's speaking and what they know of Jesus. What is their conception of him? Well, they've heard about John the Baptist. He's the last, the first prophet in hundreds of years, and he had a massive following, right? He was huge. And he said about Jesus, I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. So there's a lot of anticipation about who this Jesus is. But the question is, what's his message? Is it a message from God? Is it a new message? Some have thought he's come to abolish the law, which is verse 17. Don't think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. Why is that? Because they've heard Jesus is not keeping the Pharisaical laws. He's healing on the Sabbath. They've heard all sorts of things. Is he going to throw out the law and the prophets? They also know that he has come saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom is the rule and the reign of God in a new way. And so the natural question is, what is this kingdom like? Why do we need to repent? I mean, we're the people of God. That's what the Israelites would be thinking. Aren't we already righteous? And Jesus is going to address these. He's got two main things to say. The first is, I've not come to abolish, uh, I've come to fulfill the Old Testament. I come to meet the standard, basically. And secondly, the righteousness that God requires is of a completely different order to religious rule-keeping righteousness. Right? It's a heart righteousness that's required. There are two things he's, he's going to say. The first point, Jesus has come to fulfill the scriptures. Verse 17, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, the law and the prophets is a way of referring to the Old Testament, right? They didn't have the New Testament. People in the day, all they had was the Old Testament, the first section that we've got. They had Moses, which was the law, first five books, and then the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, had prophesied, um, and that was, the old te- that was their Old Testament. That's what they had. We have the New Testament as well. And Jesus is saying, I haven't come to, in opposition to them, I've come to fulfill them, to complete them. Carson, who was with us at church recently, helps us out here. He basically, you must understand that what Jesus is communicating shouldn't be seen too narrowly, a view about his fulfilment of the law and the prophets. Certainly it's true that he, has, he perfectly obeys the law, but he also fulfills in that by bringing them to pass. That is all that the scriptures spoke about and pointed to, Jesus brings to fruition. Now, if we've been reading through Matthew in the beginning, we would have already seen that. So in the birth narratives, the common phrase is, Jesus did, you know, he, was born, uh, he lived in Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken, that he would be a Nazarene. Was born of a virgin. This was to fulfill Isaiah the prophet. So a constant theme that Jesus is a fulfillment of what was said. But of course, Jesus will interpret his own death and resurrection as establishing a new covenant, a new contract in his blood. Which is why when you go to church, you'll have the Lord's Supper. You pass around the bread and the juice. That is the sign of this new covenant, this new contract. And so that Passover back in Egypt, when God passed over the Israelites and killed the firstborn of Egypt, why did he pass over them? Because there was the blood of the lamb across uh, the doorpost. And Jesus, that was all pointing to Jesus' sacrifice of atonement. In fact, the entire sacrificial system was all pointing to the once-for-all time when Jesus, the Son of God, would die upon the cross. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world. 
And Jesus wants us to understand that everything God has promised his people is going to come to pass. We, come, we become pretty jaded with promises. We're, heading, we're in election year, as you've probably gathered. You guys don't yet vote and maybe you're not yet jaded. But you soon will be. It'll go like this. You'll hear promises. You might vote for someone based on the promises. And then you'll find out they'll renege. For whatever reason, we couldn't do it. And so pretty much as a human, you get used to promises being broken. But Jesus is saying that every single one of God's promises are going to be fulfilled. And what he's saying is, I am going to fulfill them. Every single little dot, actually that little there, every little letter, small, bags, that's the tittle. In the Hebrew, the tiny little, little, tiny little scraping, smaller dot of a chocolate I would differentiate between how you read these two letters. And he's saying, Nothing is going to be removed. I will fulfill everything, the smallest little bit, every single bit, which is exactly what 2 Corinthians 1 says. I'll read it to you. No matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. See, all the promises God has made, they are yes in Jesus. He gives us a new heart, a new spirit. The, um, the lion and the lamb will lie down together. We come to God and we say, are you serious? And he says, yes. Yes, in Jesus. Every promise is yes in Jesus. And in fact, you can't understand the Sermon on the Mount, in fact, the entire scriptures, unless you understand that Jesus fulfills all the scriptures. He taught the same in John 5.39 when he rebuked the Pharisees. Listen to what he says. He says, he said to the Pharisees, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. In other words, eternal life is not found in the Bible itself as if, you know, it itself has life. Know what Jesus is saying? Jesus is the one in whom life is found, in relationship with him, and the Bible points to Jesus Of course, you can't know Jesus apart from the Scriptures. You can never separate the two. It's God's revelation, his word that takes us to Jesus. But life is found in Christ, in him. And you see Jesus saying to the Pharisees, you have all sorts of knowledge. You search the Scriptures, they testify about me, and you miss me. But I fulfill the Scriptures. Then other pictures, a great story. Jesus has been risen from the dead, and he's having a great time freaking out all the guys, right? He's loving it. Okay, it's a great scene. They're walking along the road to Emmaus. Two guys, they're absolutely broken. They can't believe that Jesus has been died. And he joins them and walks beside them. But they don't recognize him, right? They're walking along the road. And, uh, and they just can't believe Jesus died. And he says, uh, look, um, hey, tell me, what's taking place? He says, oh, you wouldn't believe it, man. Jesus, Jesus got killed. I oh, can't believe it. He starts to start telling what's taking place. And uh, explaining what's going on, and uh, they they kind of say, you, "What you haven't heard? How, where have you been?" He keeps listening to their story, of course, until he gets angry with them because they've forgotten what he taught them and what the scriptures had taught them—that he had to die and rise again. And so then he rebukes them and he says this to them: "He says, he says, how foolish you are." And how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? 
Then listen to this sentence. He says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Isn't that beautiful? It's another way of saying that all of God's law, all the word prepares us, is one big arrow, one big runway with lights beaming down all the way pointing to Jesus. So that you can't miss him. Not if you've got your eyes open. The whole thing points to the Saviour who is to come. And that's what Jesus is saying. There's very important implications for this, us in this. What it means is you've got to listen up. Pay careful attention to Jesus. He's not just another prophet that you could put alongside the other prophets. He is the fulfilment of all Scripture. He's the one all Scripture is pointing towards. He's the one that all the other prophets are pointing to. He's God's Son. He has all authority. He's the one who can explain us how we get right with God. Jesus has total authority. In fact, the next part of the sermon where he's about to go to, he's going to um, be getting into the details of our life. That's where he's going. He's going to tell us how to live. And you know what? We don't like other people telling us how to live, um, about how we're to treat each other with our anger or our sexuality or our speech, or divorce. And he's going to do that the rest of the sermon. What are you going to say? Well, you know, that's, that's not the way I'd do it. Uh, which was great. Was it Nicole last night? Great testimony saying, I came to youth group, kept hearing, that wouldn't be the way I'd do it. That's what we're all like. That wouldn't be the way I'd do it. But when you differ with Jesus... You're wrong. I'm wrong. And he's right. And we need to remember who who is speaking to us. He's the one who fulfills all the law. He's the one who interprets what true righteousness is. And we don't say, thanks, Jesus, but I read it different. Now you put your way aside and you receive truth from the God who became man. That's what we need to do when we come to Jesus and his teaching and the, the scriptures. We take his words and his commands He's about to teach us seriously. And I take it that's what's going on in verse 19. He says, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The commands that he's referring there, I think, to the commands he's about to teach them in the rest of the sermon. And one of the, the least of these commands is what I'm about to teach you about true righteousness about anyone who does them and anyone who teaches them. What's that mean? Well, it means that in, the king, in this kingdom, in this world, beauty and wealth and power rule. But in the kingdom of heaven, greatness is measured by how much you help others know and obey God. You might not be impressive in this world, but if you come alongside someone else and you teach them about God, and you help them, encourage them to obey God, then you are great in the kingdom of heaven. Which means a few things about your leaders, doesn't it? Right? That's the first point. Right? Second point. First point, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. He, it all points towards him, and he, he's fulfilling it. Second point, the kingdom requires a heart righteousness. That is a righteousness that is profoundly different, quantitatively different, to the religious rule-keeping righteousness of the Pharisees. Right? 
There's two righteousnesses that are clashing. Verse 18, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. But then he raises stakes even more. Verse 20, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What? None of the law will be done away with, but the most religious-keeping dudes around, the Pharisees, we've got to be more righteous than them? What is going on here? Well, let's just back it up a bit. All right? Jesus said in 4.17, you need to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when you hear that message, the question you ask is, okay, what do I need to repent of? What's God's standard I'm not meeting? What's this righteousness that I'm not meeting? Because repentance is turning away from the way you're living and turning back to God. What is God's standard here for me? Is, if there is this kingdom of heaven that I'm going to be part of, how do I get in? What are the requirements, the standards, the righteousness? And Jesus is saying there is a standard and you may or may not be able to enter this into heaven. So righteousness matters. The standard matters. But see... That's when we see that our tendency, our way of viewing things, in our independence and pride and self-confidence, whenever we hear the way, word of righteousness, we want a righteousness that we can manage. Now here's what I mean by this. See, it's, it's not actually that we don't like rules. Actually, as human beings, I don't know whether you know this about yourself or not, but we actually do like rules. We love them. Um, we want to feel that we're doing enough. We want to, we want to um, know that we're keeping rules, that we're measuring up. We want to feel we're doing enough, whether it's in a group of friends or whatever group of society. We want to feel we measure up, that we meet the standard. But we do it in our pride. We want a standard that we can accomplish. And that's the, that's the nature of religion and man-made religion. It's men and women who say, here's a list that I can do. If I give enough, cry enough, serve enough, I do all this work, then God has to love me and accept me. We want a righteousness that we can manage, that we can meet in our own strength and self-effort and willpower. And what Jesus is showing and teaching is that there is no way you can meet uh, this right standard in our own effort, God's standard of righteousness. There is no righteousness that we can pull off that's ever going to be good enough. Because the righteousness that God requires isn't just about keeping rules. It requires a supernatural intervention of God. It requires God becoming man to die in our place, to rise again, to give us power over sin in our lives so that sin can be beaten. And guess what? That's exactly what happened. If you, if you break down all the religions of the world, take Scientology, the classic doctrine there is, we believe, they say, we believe that man is essentially is good and he can save themselves. That's not just Scientology. That's all the religions of the world believe that men and women are essentially good and they can save themselves. It's man-centred. What they're really saying is all we need is just some morality. Now, I've seen over the years lots of guys get sent to church by their parents to get some morals. Maybe your parents did that. Um, church is about learning right from wrong. Learn to be a right person, be, be a good person. You know, get some morals. And what Jesus is saying 
is being righteous in the kingdom of heaven is never about good morals. No, no, you need resurrection power. You need to be regenerated, born again, recreated. You need a complete, profound makeover of a, you need to be a different person. Imagine telling your parents who sent you off to camp to get some morals, actually, mum and dad, I got recreated. How'd that go down? I, I was born again, completely, profoundly transformed into a different person in Christ Jesus. You might need to think about how you might say that to your parents. Um, think about, yeah, I'm not saying just say it like that. Um, there is a difference between man-centered religion. You see, if we just come along this week and we sing songs and we try and be, a better, be, better, be better people, we're wasting our time. Christianity is supernatural religion. Our salvation is not based on being good people. Our salvation is based on the Son of God coming down and rescuing us by his power. That's our only hope. That's what we sing about. That's our hope. And that's what the gospel does. Whatever you're hoping, what you trust in, the gospel comes along and it cuts it out from underneath you. Whatever the hope, whatever the idol. So when Jesus said you need to be more righteous than the Pharisees, the people would have gone, what? The girls would have cried, the guys would have vomited. It was like, what? More righteous than the Pharisees? I mean, the Pharisees were the SAS of religious dudes. Right? They're like the Marines, the psychos. You could put a dot. They memorized scripture. You could put a dot, a needlehead over any word in the Old Testament, and they knew all the words behind that word. Right? Like we are talking superhuman religious dudes of another planet. They spent their entire life, entire life, consumed with being religious. And the scribes, I mean, they, they, went, they had levels of laws they created. So if there's the righteous God requires and there's a cliff you can, you can fall off, they created levels to protect themselves so they were miles from it, so they never got near it. As Jesus says, you, they tithe, they tithe their herbs. They go out and they get the thyme out of the garden, they get it there and they cut it up and they get Little, you know how small time is? It's tiny. 10%. That's what the scribes were like. Their religiosity they took to the nth degree. They, took, they made rules they wouldn't even get close to breaking the original laws. They didn't even know what the original laws were anymore. In fact, that's what Jesus is going to get to. And Jesus says, you've got to be more righteous than them. <laughs> What's Jesus saying? What, you've got to try harder? You need more rules? No. He's saying the righteous God requires is quantitatively different. It's a different standard. And he's just going to talk about it, right? Let's just, let's just go there quickly. Um, verse 21. You've heard it said, as they just heard it said, they don't, the, the original laws are lost. You've heard it said uh, to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Or verse 27, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, that's have sex outside of marriage. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Or verse 43, you've heard that it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In verse 48, to top it all off, he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
I mean, you heard this. What God requires is much more. The point is you can't do it in your own strength, right? So you raise your hand if you haven't murdered anyone, right? That's good to know, although I'm a bit worried. (laughs) There's a lot of hands still not up. Okay. And that's what it's like, right? Right? By that standard, we all feel good, right? And that was the people. They all felt good about themselves. We haven't murdered anyone. Jesus says, no, no, no. If you've ever become angry with your brother or sister, if you ever become angry, then you're below the standard. Now, who's not had sex outside of marriage? No, we won't go there, right? But many people go, okay, pretty cool. Who has never looked lustfully on a woman? Well, I mean, there's women here, right? (laughs) Or vice versa. Or vice versa. Right? Right? We're all gone. We're all gone. Completely gone. And that's the point. And that's the point. He keeps going through them, going through them, and they just pile up. And the response ought to be, if, you've got, if you're not delusional, I can't do it. I can't do it. Have mercy on me, a sinner. That's exactly the place Jesus wants you to be in. That's the point. That's what he wants you to see. That you can only be righteous in him, through him, by him. He says you, you can't meet the standard. He's the only one who meets God's standard. He comes to do that very thing, to fulfill it in our place. And it's wrong to approach Jesus to say, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What? What? You can't. Do anything. Rather, depend on him, lean on him, trust in him. Not a rule-keeping righteousness, but an inner heart transformation needs to take place. And as you read the Sermon on the Mount, you're supposed to say, I'd have to become a completely different person. That's exactly what you're supposed to say. And that's the point. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. To This is exactly what the... The apostles saw, the disciples saw. You see, as Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, cut off your arm, what not. They didn't go cutting off their arms. They saw that wasn't the point. It is a radical righteousness. They would seek to be radically righteous in Christ Jesus, yes. But the point is in Philippians chapter 3, where we read Paul's testimony, his of his conversion. If verse 4b, if someone else thinks that they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. This guy was the SAS trooper of SAS trooper as far as legalistic law-keeping righteousness. That's Paul, Saul. This was his original name. Of course, and then one day on the Damascus Road, he saw Jesus in glory and he realised instantly he'd got it all wrong. And he put his faith in Christ and in Christ alone for his righteousness. 
And so then he says, verse 7, But whatever were, were gains for, for, uh, to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may know Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. You see that? He realized that Jesus is the one who makes him righteous. And whatever he had, whatever gain he had through a, a law-keeping righteousness, he considers it rubbish. A loss, actually. God gives a righteousness that's through faith. And Jesus says you can't get there unless you have a righteousness that is uh, profoundly different, of a different order and nature than the Pharisees and the scribes. And it doesn't come through the law. It comes through the righteousness of Jesus. Basically, Jesus fulfills Ezekiel 36, where God had promised, he said, I will give you, talking to the people of God, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And that's exactly what he does in Jesus, if you trust him by faith. You see, we can't clean ourselves up by our own power. We need a new heart, a new spirit. And Jesus says, I've come to fulfill Ezekiel 36, and to give you a new heart. And so God is going to give you a desire to please me that you couldn't work up in your own strength. That's what Jesus come to do. And so he comes preaching the gospel. It's, so this morning we've heard good news and bad news. Bad news is you can't measure up to God, stand on your own, through your own works. There's no amount of effort or strength that you can do to measure up. That's the bad news. The good news, Jesus has come. He fulfills every promise God has made. He fulfills God's law. He rescues those who are weak. He opens blind eyes. So we have a hope for a righteousness that comes by faith. I'll urge you to put your trust in him. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus who the Old Testament spoke of, prophesied, and would in time, in your timing, come and fulfill all those good promises that in Jesus all those good promises are yes and amen. And Father, we, we thank you that he meets your standard. We pray that we won't look to ourselves and what we can do, but we would see that we need to put our hope and we need to lean on and depend and put our trust in Jesus the one in whom we can be righteous because of his blood shed upon the cross. We do pray, Father, that as we, we, we rise in his righteousness, that we would see that through him we can live a new life that pleases Jesus. And we pray this for his glory's sake. Amen.